0: Back and it's time for questions and discussion. Who will ask the first question? Yes.
1: Uh, it goes back to angels and, of course, the creation of the devil. Uh, so, uh, what day do you think, or do you think it was in that time frame you referenced that that's when all of the angelic beings were created during the, the six day spans of creation, including Satan himself and all the other?
0: Okay, you're asking the, the creation of the angels on the first day. We talked about that. And then what?
1: Just that, so you believe that there were they, they didn't predate anything that we get in Genesis at all?
0: Did the angels predate anything that we get in Genesis on day one? I don't think so. I don't think they existed until God created, as it says here, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So on the first day... For them to exist, they had to exist before he laid the foundation of the earth, and they rejoiced in it according to Job 38.7. But if they existed before time, then they would also be eternal. They have to exist when God first created time on day one. Otherwise, they would be eternal creatures. And that would be a contradiction of terms, but they would be gods because they would be eternal. If they existed in eternity past, before time existed, then they would be God. Since we know they're not God and we should not worship them, Colossians 2, 16 to 23 says not to worship the angels. And even Hebrews 1, putting Christ above the angels, let all the angels of God worship Him, it says. So they should worship Christ, but they should not be worshiped. Why? Because they are creatures, They were created. And by definition, that which is created was created in time. And in time would be day one of creation. Is that your question? Yes, sir. Okay.
2: So if they were eternal, would that necessitate them being worshipped? If they were eternal beings.
0: If they were eternal beings, would that necessitate them being worshipped? Yes, because a part of being God, or an attribute of God, right. is his eternalness. His eternalness, but also there are other attributes, such as his incommunicable attributes, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. God has those, but we do not. And all of the other attributes, perfection of holiness, perfection of love, perfection of Perfection of righteousness are all in God, but not in us. We have a taste of that. We experience it to some level, but not in the perfect form, in the perfect way that God has it, has all of it. So his eternal nature is only that which he has. Only he has that we do not. It says in Psalm Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Because he's eternal, he is uniquely different from anything that we call God or any creature, because everything else is a creature, is an invention. Yes. So
1: my my follow-up would, would be this: Then, uh, I assume we we'll, well, well, we thought we might get to it today, but we didn't make it that far. So would 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 you say then that the fall of Satan took place after the sixth day, that it didn't predate the sixth day? Because on the sixth day, if if Genesis one is speaking about all of creation, all of time, all of it, not just there specifically, then Would you say that Satan fell after the sixth day, because on the sixth day, he still declared it was very good?
0: Yes. When God finished creating... So when did Satan fall? Did he fall after the sixth day or what? On the sixth day, after God had finished all of his creation, he declared everything to be very good. Everything he created. Everything he created to be very good on the sixth day, and the culmination of his creation was the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, on the sixth day. Um, And then Genesis 2 will describe that there was an actual process. He had created the animals, he created the man, brought the animals in front of the man, and then created the woman. That was the culmination of the sixth day. Though there is no single verse of the Bible that says that the fall occurred on the sixth day, I believe that there is ample evidence in the Bible to make that assertion. That the fall occurred on the sixth day after God created Eve, the woman, then the fall happened shortly after that. And it's not my own interpretation. This is in the history of interpretation. There is a book, The Modern, uh, the Marrow of Modern divinity or theology by Edward Fisher and Thomas Boston. In that book they detail several reasons why they believe and even they say that the Greek fathers, the Greek church fathers in the early church, that that was a common belief among them that the fall occurred on the sixth day. Just to give you a couple of reasons why. For one reason, if it did not occur on the sixth day, then which day did it occur? And if we say that it occurred a week later, a month later, a year later, or even longer, what would that necessitate in the interim? Would that not necessitate having sexual intercourse and producing children since God said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and that was a part of their blessing? Would they not have procreated or attempted to procreate? And why would any of the two of them be barren? Adam or Eve would not be barren. The, the first time they procreated, there would have been children, right? Because there would have been no curse in the world, no barrenness, no impotence, nothing like that. So they were told, be fruitful, multiply, and that was a blessing. So certainly before they came together as husband and wife, the fall would have occurred. Because if it did not occur and they did conceive... If they did conceive a child, then that child would have been born without original sin, without a completely corrupt, totally depraved nature, right? So that, that, that would be a reason to say it has to be very shortly after they were created. And so I, I propose, as well as these other authors propose, the sixth day. My,
1: I guess my reason, I, I agree with all of that. I guess my reason for the question is... It's funny, we seldom think of Satan in those terms, in that type of sense. I think there's the, the, probably the prevailing thought is maybe a million years earlier, Satan fell. And he was just waiting and inviting his time to do and, and all of that. And I think in the context of viewing Genesis 1 as the creation, creation, big sense, the creation story of the heavens and the earth. I think necessitates that thought and we, again, we. That's one of the things, too, uh, I think sometimes we wonder if Satan was happy for a long time in heaven and then became unhappy. Uh, but but you know, in all likelihood.
0: Yeah, what, was Satan happy a long time before, then became unhappy? Or we have to, I'm just repeating some of the things you're saying so that others can hear it, that We often think that Satan must have been around for a million years and waited for an opportune time to make man fall and and bring sin and misery into the world. But I think in the sequence of Genesis 1, he was created on the first day and then the fall, I think the fall of the angels and the fall of man happened on the the sixth day. The moment that the angels fell, then Satan came into the garden in order to um, caused the fall of Adam and Eve. In fact, if, if we take Ezekiel 28 to be of Satan, it says he was in the garden already as a perfect creature. Yeah. And then it says, until unrighteousness was found in you, which means he was there, he was, he was perfect, and then in the garden he fell and then went over to Adam and Eve and caused them to fall.
3: And knowing his, his nature as evil corrupt, and like how Peter describes it in 1 Peter 5, like a lion seeking someone to devour, that as soon as he became that corrupt, that he would immediately want someone to devour. Yes. That he wouldn't wait a hundred years or uh, two months or, I mean, that his nature is to destroy. Yes. To murder from the beginning, to kill, uh, to lie and so that he immediately goes about doing, doing that
0: yes and so the next comment is that it should not surprise us that Satan being of the nature of being a devourer as it's described in 1 Peter 5.8 and your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour that if that is his nature why should it surprise us Or that he after falling immediately goes to find other people and cause them to sin yeah that's true Okay, someone else on the same topic? Okay,
3: yes. Can I make a comment on a different topic? Yes, go ahead. I saw, just, again, you were talking about the, the, uh, speaking about people in regards to men, as man or mankind, and then also the environmentalism. I I did read two articles this week. One, where the Prime Minister of Canada corrected a girl, she said humankind, And he stopped her and said, people kind. We need to refer to it as people kind. So this is not, uh, this is something that people are doing, that they're enforcing. And humankind is a more generic term than mankind. But that's not even enough. You need to call it people kind. So that is the
2: Okay.
0: (laughs) so the first comment is that this week you you read how the prime minister of Canada, Trudeau, he corrected a girl or a woman when she said humankind. He said, no, we have to say people kind. Okay. Okay, next point.
3: Okay. I didn't know if he had a name for him. True, true. <laughs> okay, anyway, the <laughs> next one was an article that a lot of women are, uh, there are women who are choosing not to have children because they want to save the environment. Yes. And they're afraid of bringing a child and that if we keep uh, populating, the whole world's going to be like a desert.
0: Yes. Yes. And in fact, um, Hillary Rodham Clinton lectured a few days ago, and she actually said to the young women that people are the problem, we're going to destroy the planet, and the desert is going to spread from, um, Africa, from Africa to India all the way into the United States. It's going to come this way, and therefore we should not be having children, and so on and so forth. She's teaching women, younger women, to believe this stuff. So. It's a real thing. The, the biblical truths that we're talking about are real. Uh, they have real implications, practical implications. And it, you can see as it's played out, if you are observing the world and, and learning the Bible, you can see that these beliefs in the world are very destructive. They're very malicious, very destructive, right. and, and very twisted, warped, very satanic and devilish for people to believe and promote those things. Yes.
4: Well, let's, I did only have one comment, but since Jerry mentioned that, I'll comment on that quick. on the first subject. My it's not just in Canada that those types of things are happening. My my wife Sarah was in school last semester at Tulsa Community College, and her English teacher, composition teacher, she she used the words he and she in a paper, and she was corrected by her teacher like that's not academically acceptable. Anymore. You can't do that <laughs> in Oklahoma. <laughs> yes. I thought that was out there in California. So yes,
0: the, comment, the comment is that your wife was a, a student in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and her teacher corrected her at the college saying, You cannot use he and she anymore in your papers. Today, it, academically, it's unacceptable,
4: mm-hmm. she was told. My actual question. <laughs> okay, now your question. Uh, it's on a different subject, but along the lines of creation and stuff. So, so we talked about all food being clean. I'm curious why the um, apostles advocated abstaining
0: from blood for the Gentiles, like in Acts 15, verse 19, Okay, yes. Now, the question is, in reference to food, clean and unclean foods, why in Acts 15 did the apostles say the following, Acts 15, verse 19, 15, 19, therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. He says the reason in 21, for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. The problem is among Jews and Gentiles, they needed to have harmony in the local church. So he's telling them, make sure these basic things are not being transgressed. That is, don't eat things contaminated by idols, don't practice fornication, don't eat what's strangled, and don't eat blood. And when he says Moses is, is read in the synagogues every Sabbath, both Jews and Gentiles they will hear of these instructions in the law of Moses, and even in Genesis chapter 9. Right? It Doesn't Genesis chapter 9 make mention of the blood part of it? Uh, and even, um, it doesn't say f- um, fornication, but the moral sins are kind of implied there when it says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So morality is certainly in view in Genesis 9 also and also the rest of the law of Moses. Prohibits murder and prohibits the eating of blood. But my point about Genesis 9 and its relationship to Acts 15 is this. Genesis 9 is part of the Noahic covenant and it precedes the law of Moses and it is universal. And that's what Acts 15 is emphasizing, this universal prohibition. That's its relevance in Acts 15 don't don't practice any of these sins okay follow up, follow up? So,
1: yes
5: um, you know it's uh abstaining from from eating things that are packed with oil you know says that you know all things
4: not for your own conscience, but for the other conscience. You know, the other conscience. So, like, I guess I see a um, a, uh, contra- no,
0: almost a contradiction between those two things. I'm not quite sure how to put that together, I guess. Okay. How to deal with Paul's statements, and I'll refer to 1 Corinthians 10 because he addresses your question. In 1 Corinthians ten, twenty three to 33, and we'll read a part of that. 1 Corinthians 10.23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. We have to pause for a moment. What are these all things? I don't think when he says all things are lawful, and uh, but not all things are profitable and not all things edify. I don't think all things are lawful means you can practice whatever you want, or you can practice whatever sin you want. I don't think he's talking about that because 1 Corinthians and throughout the Bible, there are prohibitions and warnings on practicing sin. So when he says all things are lawful, he's talking about foods. He's talking about foods, all foods. Why? 24. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the market, meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If, so there he says, eat whatever is sold and he says without asking questions. Just eat whatever is sold when you buy it in the meat market because everything belongs to God. 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, Eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. One of the unbelievers. An unbeliever would naturally be an idolater, especially in that day and age in the Greek culture. They would have worshipped any one of the gods of the Greek pantheon. So they would have been worshipping, and so don't ask questions for conscience' sake. He'll explain what he means by conscience. 28. But if anyone should say to you, This meat, uh, this meat is uh, sacrificed to idols. Do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake. Now, if somebody says this actually is meat sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it. Now that there has been made a connection, a spiritual connection to the eating of the food, we cannot be in support of idolatry, and since the host has made the connection, then you are to say, no, I'm not going to eat it, do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? He's saying, the other man's conscience, don't eat it for, because of his conscience, don't make him think and feel that eating or or worshiping idols and eating that meat is well and good, that there's no offense to God and no offense to the people of God. Don't let him think that. The moment he announces that it's meat sacrificed to idols, to you, then that comes into play. That's in view. So don't let that happen so that he does not have a conscience that justifies his behavior. Then verse 30, If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. There, when we give thanks then that should be it. That's like 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. When we give thanks, if it's just the food, then just give thanks and eat it, and whatever we do, do for the glory of God, and we're not supposed to offend Jews or Greeks. It's not as though Jews can be easily offended by us, but Greeks, we should be walking on eggshells all the time. No, we have to be conscientious when we're with Jews and Greeks. And make sure we glorify God. And please, all men in all things—that is—seek the best interest of this in the situation for all people. Does that help answer the question or not?
3: Yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't want to get off topic, so yeah. Okay. So, I'll so follow. That, up. So the when they announce that it's in sacrifice, then the believer is to say, "I won't eat it," which would be offensive to the unbeliever they've invited you into their home and you're saying you're not going to eat their food but it's also for the purpose of making sure he knows that i do not approve of your practices i mean that's that's the point right so that he doesn't feel like the christian approves of his idol worship and that we can all just get along. yes would you then speak to that in regards to say some type of an ecumenical movement where all the christians roman catholics Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, uh, Evangelical, this and that, all get together and we're going to pray about some social issue or something like that and we all get together and pray. We shouldn't do that either, right? Because we're giving them the impression that their religion is legitimate.
0: Yeah. Correct? Okay. So in this passage, if we're not to eat of meat, sacrificed to idols when our host announces that it is sacrificed to idols so as to give our host approval that it's okay to worship idols and eat that meat offered to the idols. If, and that would be offensive to say that to our host if the host were to announce it. If that is the case in that situation would it also not be the case that we as believers should not participate in ecumenical meetings because we know that the people of other churches, other denominations, do not truly and really believe the same gospel. They don't believe in the same gospel. Like Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, many of them are liberal. They don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe in the gospel. They don't believe that Jesus died for their sins. They believe in universalism. Everybody's going to get to heaven some way and so on and so forth. They believe things like that. They don't believe in miracles, so there's no resurrection of Christ, on and on. If they are that way, then they're not true and real Christians, so why should we pray with them and say, we worship the same God, let's pray together, and, and let's try to handle this conflict we have in the community together? Would that be wrong? The answer is yes, it would be wrong, because we don't worship the same God. We don't worship the same God, we don't believe in the same gospel, they're not Christians because of what they believe. Okay, now another one. New topic. A new topic. Go ahead.
2: Yeah.
5: Okay, forgive me if you did speak of this, um, but can you go back to verse two in chapter one and maybe expand upon the. The usage of the, the words translated that we see there as far as earth was without form and void. Um, what, what, what is that implying? What, are the, what does that look like?
0: Okay, back to Genesis 1 verse 2. And the earth was formless and void. What do those words mean, formless and void? They mean unformed and unfilled. Unformed and unfilled formless, no form. The earth is just a globe. It has water all around it and darkness all around it. There's no shape except for that plain, simple shape. So it's formless in that sense. When God forms it, he's going to separate the waters. He's gonna put them in one place. He's gonna make dry land appear. And then when he makes it unvoided, that is, he's gonna fill it. Void means empty, right? So that's the sense in which this verse means void, empty, nothing is there. He's going to fill it with animals, with plants, with trees. He's going to fill it with people. That's the sense in which he's going to reverse the formlessness and the voidness. Follow up?
5: So yeah, I just maybe clarify the word form then. Um, you know, form, I don't... I don't I don't want to use this word, but it sounds like the way you're using it, maybe it might be shit, like some type of shape, like if you're saying that the earth was without form, meaning that it was, you know, the, the, you're saying that the, the earth was, was without any type of form to it, and then the, the waters uh, were over the face of over it, and then he separated it, that's, to me that's still a form.
0: Okay, he doesn't mean form in a strict sense. And he doesn't mean void in a strict sense, because the same verse says that there's darkness and there's water, right? And if there's water, there has to be something under the water holding up the water, right? That's the foundation of the earth. So there is a foundation, there is water, there is darkness. So apart from that, there's no form. And apart from that, it is void. That's the sense, that's the context.
4: what it says for waste and emptiness.
0: One. Okay, you're saying that in your Bible, a footnote says waste and emptiness. Now, the problem with that rendering is that it has the connotation of chaos, misery, death, something that has gone wrong. And those who want to see a gap of time between the first verse and the second verse prefer that interpretation or prefer that translation that there's misery and chaos, waste, um, disaster throughout the world because God first created it in verse 1, four and a half billion years ago, perfectly, and then he let Satan destroy the earth, and then about 6,000 years ago, when God created Adam and Eve, when he created Adam and Eve. Before he did that, he recreated from this chaotic mess of verse 2. He recreated, and then that recreation is in verses 3 to 31. That's the view called ruin reconstruction, or and actually it should be creation, ruin reconstruction, but people just say ruin reconstruction theory or gap theory. They say there's a gap of time, which is four and a half billion years, between the first verse and the second verse, or, or the third verse. Yes, follow up.
5: Yes, yeah, so are you saying, are you saying that the earth was, was when it was created that it was a, uh, a a organ a very organized ball of mass with waters all surrounding on top of it, or are you saying that God simply created the materials and that it was very disorganized? and then God later organized it to the way he wanted I'm trying to see, in your mind when you read verse 2, what do you picture the earth to look like?
0: Okay, the question, did God create this initial mass with a globe and water all around it and darkness all around it, or did he create these different components and was it chaotic and messy and then he put it together? Then my answer is the first. The first is what I see in verses 1 and following. The first is he created the globe. That is the hard, the core, the mass of the earth. He created that. That's the foundation. And then he created water all around it. Every place all around the whole earth. On day one, there was water everywhere. That's why it says in the account for day three, that he made the dry land appear. He put the water in one place and he put the dry land in another place. And there was a boundary. He put
5: put everything on and then later he landscaped it. Yes,
0: yes. So he he landscaped it in the rest of this passage. That's correct. And the landscaping includes separation, waters and dry land, And also, uh, water above the expanse, water below the expanse. It includes plants, it includes animals, and it it includes people.
5: Now, clearly the Bible doesn't say this, but would you say that he probably did a similar process in all of the heavenly bodies?
0: Did he do a similar process with all of the heavenly bodies?
5: Because they all have different texture, different, you know... Like, I guess yeah,
0: they, they also are different. I don't know. I don't know if, if the Bible, and uh, what the implications are of that. It, it just says that he did it on the fourth day he created them. But whether they have remained the same or not, I don't know. We do know that there are asteroids. So we do know that some of them don't remain the way that they are. So since there is change, likely they've been changing since he initially created used to
2: be water. okay yes well if you look at a globe you can see if if all the water goes away you can almost put it all together as a one body and that's how God created it I mean it was all water and he took that water and divided it and made all the land yes I mean mean, north, south, east and west (laughs) yes
0: Yes. if we we take a globe and put all the water in one place you could put water in one place and the land together and it would fit yeah yeah Yes. Okay.
2: So, um, water below the expanse, water above the expanse, does that mean that there's water in the heaven of heavens?
0: Does that mean if there is water below the expanse and above the expanse, does it mean that there is water in the heaven of heavens? I don't think that there's water in the heaven of heavens, that is where God is, where the angels worship him. Not there, because it just says in verses 9 to, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, let the dry land appear. I'm sorry, verse 6. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse and it was so. And the expanse, uh, God called heaven. Now, this water that's above I think that it is mentioned in Genesis chapter 7 verse 11, 7:11, 11, that says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Says the floodgates of the sky
2: because I, I, so that I, I means... thought of, you know, the, the water in the atmosphere, you know, the clouds, but it, it seems to clearly say, you know, the water above the expanse from the water below the expanse. So, you know, the Earth's atmosphere, outer space, and above outer space, so I, I've been unsure about that for quite some no, time. No, I don't think he's
0: saying above outer space. I think he's meaning in the atmosphere, oh, above okay. in the atmosphere. Oh, well, that, that, That's all. That's all he's saying. Okay. Yes.
2: Uh,
0: this will be the last one. Our time is up. Oh, good. Yes.
2: Okay. Genesis one thirty one. Yes. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And we're talking about the infinitely pure and holy God who is um, good and all the things that he has done up until then are giving us a picture of his goodness, right? Yes. Like he decided that he would create and he created and, and everything is a picture of perfection in his sight all the way through mankind and then everything has order, everything has structure, everything has purpose and he puts mankind in this environment and pronounces it very good so how what are we to, to gather from from who God is from what he has just done?
0: Okay. Genesis 131, it says, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Since it says that it was very good, and God is good, and he's displaying his goodness, and he did so through creation and structure, orderliness. Purpose, meaning, he's done it that way, what should that teach us about God and our relationship to him? Right. We should seek for the same. Yeah. We should seek for all of those things as well. That's what that, that teaches us. Um, for example, in terms of orderliness, 1 Corinthians 14.40, But let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. The way things are handled in church, properly and in an orderly manner, and that will have to be as defined by the Bible, properly and orderly as defined by the Bible, whether it's there or whether it's in uh, male-female relationships, husband and wife relationships, parents and children, whatever it is, our, our relationship to others in society, like our relationship to the government, there needs to be orderliness. There needs to be structure. All right?
2: And the way that we uh, ascertain what that is is by seeing what God did and holding that as the perfect rule for everything else.
0: Yes. What God did, as revealed in the Bible, whatever we need to know for goodness, for righteousness, for holiness, anything we need to know is all found in the Bible. That's our source. All right.